Section 34, Office 94, Office 96. Fifteen percent of the resources dedicated to Chicago, or 85% of the resources on Office 96. See what we did there? Explaining the resource allocation for the parallel releases as marketed internally. The use of year-of-release codenames was not arbitrary, but reflected a broad consensus within leadership that Microsoft needed to move to product releases that reflected more of an annuity or a subscription relationship with customers. The idea of using a year moniker was based on how car companies used model years. We had yet to prove software could be released in this fashion, reliably, and we still lacked a way to distribute products so quickly, but the idea became a cornerstone of planning what to build and how to articulate value. The early naming resource for Chicago was heading down the path of using a year name, and similarly, Office 4.x would be the last version number release. Marketing had mixed feelings about the year names. The biggest issue was that for some period of time, customers would hold off purchasing a product knowing the current version was old. It was also quite stressful for the development teams that had no idea how to ship so much software so frequently on real deadlines. Take the idea of one release in 12 months and a second one 12 months later, both starting from the same date in late 1993, led naturally to naming the releases 94, 96, or perhaps Office 94 and Office 96. We didn't include spaces since this was all for file names and source code projects. The 94-96 plan was in place. Sync within 30 days for Chicago in the spring of 1995 or thereabouts. Then Office 96, 12 months later. Our team's passion was around Office 96, with Office 94 being somewhat of a strategy tax while at the same time being viewed as an excellent opportunity to prove out Office as a product and OPU as a team. The plan covered what was necessary and sufficient, albeit with a huge risk. What if Office 94 took too long as Windows slipped, bumping up against Office 96? You can see the schedule chicken already being played with the assumption that Windows would slip their schedule, but Office would not, though there was little history across Word, Excel, and PowerPoint to think Office schedules were that robust and zero experience shipping the entire Office suite at once. History would show that no matter how far off apps might be, Windows was going to be further off. To execute required employing a great deal of finesse and some game theory. A planner emerged prior to me joining the team, but one I sold to Bill G as his technical assistant. The office team's 94-96 plan split the resources across releases substantially in favor of Office 96. Each product unit, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and OPU, devoted one feature team to Office 94, and the remaining teams were all on Office 96. A feature team is the organizational unit of a dev team and is made up of a software development lead and anywhere from three to seven software developers. There was an equal amount of testing and two or three program managers. This was phrased, marketed internally, as 15% of the resources dedicated to Chicago, or 85% of the resources on Office 96. See what was done there? Everyone got something. When talking to Windows, we emphasized the dedicated Chicago team. When speaking across desktop apps and especially to marketing, we emphasize the 85% on Office 96. The online version includes a team meeting slide with the 4-1994 Chicago date for the summer of 1994, as well as the product development list or the PDL, which showed the original ship dates for Office 94 and 96. 
Depending on perspective, this was either a relief, albeit still a high cost to pay to get moving on to Office 96, or a total snub aimed at Chicago. What? Only 15% of the team? One view of this was that the unreliability of Chicago's schedule was such that to sacrifice any more resources would not be prudent. The worst case would be, ironically, if Chicago did hit the date, then too many people trying to do too much in office would never finish within 30 days. A different view was that 15% was hardly sufficient. Chicago was aiming to be the most important release for consumers, Windows NT was for business, and since the office business was still a consumer-driven phenomenon, it didn't make sense to be so frugal. With the 15%, there was a lot for systems to dislike. If the requirement was to ship simultaneously and reliably with Chicago, then a small team doing the minimal amount was the most prudent. Though such thinking was never in line with how systems worked, which was an all-in-or-not mindset. More importantly, with desktop apps, the major challenge with the Office 96 part of the plan was the general view that 15% of the resources, reductions on top of the shift to OPU, would significantly impact the ability to be competitive within categories, a further reminder about the teams being reduced to fund OPU. If your head is spinning reading this, then you can see why the whole plan of 1224 was causing heads to spin and adding in the animosity or just complexity of the new office product unit and the shift to suites only made things worse. We still needed a way to structure the detailed schedule. Normally, we would have three milestones of about 10 weeks each. Given the mandate to sync with Chicago, the schedule worked out to only a single development milestone instead of the traditional three milestone schedule. Not only was such a small portion of the team on the project, but they would be doing a lot less work. Aside from syncing the final date, the other issue was being available for pre-release testing on Chicago's schedule, as they were going to want reviewers to see proof of 32-bit applications. This requirement further justified the schedule and resource constraints. That did little to appease systems that felt we were totally hedging. Without a feature list or specification written, things seemed shaky. Picking dates with resource levels set is the first rule of shipping, though. Up until this point, most apps releases had been dictated by the improvements in ease of use while adding productivity features that were the most logical next steps. There was innovation in category features across Word and Excel, but there was also a decade of history in the category, whereas PowerPoint was still establishing the category and faced different challenges. While most of the 94-96 plan was chosen on business and customer grounds of the apps, the prioritization of what to do was heading in a new direction with emphasis on the suite. There was a great deal of momentum in both the organization and the processes. It was easy for apps, even with fewer people, to keep going down the same path. And it also seemed right from a business perspective. A new product category demanded new investments and new priorities, however. Office 94 was about Chicago, and that was clear. But what did that mean for the category? It would also be the first release of Office to ship all the products on time, which was unique. Office 94 would provide a marketplace evidence of an integrated suite of products by shipping at the same time with some specific work aimed at demonstrating its sweet nature. Reviews were still written by category, though, and that now included a new category called Suites. By and large, the yearly magazine issues devoted to word processors or spreadsheets was one of the top sellers. 
it would seem we need category features to fill those pages and indirectly meet demands of customers and to win reviews. Times were changing, though. The key insight for building a suite versus selling a suite was that customers were placing a value on the integration and consistency across component products. Given the origin of the suites as product bundling plus discount and the penetration of business software at the time, it was no surprise that the early value propositions from all the vendors centered on ease of use just as the category products did. For suites, however, ease of use was evaluated by user interface consistency, the idea being that consistency made products easier to learn and thus easier to use. Technologically, the idea was that if the product shared code between them to accomplish consistency, then using more than one product would also consume fewer system resources like memory. It was still all too common for Windows users to see out-of-memory error messages, and those became more common as users were encouraged by suites to run multiple products at once. There was the architectural synergy minimal memory footprint, and code sharing that Bill G. loved and championed. Office 94 had no time for any major architectural investments, however. In need of constraints, another constraint was added. Office 94 would not change the file format, the .doc and .xls formats that everyone knew and loved, and would rely on the same format as already been used as just released for Office 4.x. This became the mother of all constraints, as both a positive and a negative. I recognize today this seemingly obscure issue, the details of a .doc or .xls file, seem far removed from anything that could matter. But in reality, that was not the case at all. Here's why. Through the entirety of applications on PCs from the start, new releases of products nearly always meant new file formats. With that change came the pain of making sure old files could be read and displayed and the experience of saving new files as the old format to a floppy, for example, to give to someone without the new version of the product, and alerting users when something would not work on the old version. While many assumed this was a conspiracy theory and some sort of theory of obsolescence, in reality, changing formats was directly related to the underlying implementation of files. For the most part, the file formats of apps represented a direct mapping of the internals of the product and what was stored in memory. In fact, the word file format was literally a type of virtual memory. There was neither a level of abstraction nor a mechanism to interpret the data that the app did not know about. This clever invention was from Charles Simone and something he brought with him from Xerox Palo Alto Research Center and was a huge favorite of Bill G, who knew all the details of that architecture. Decades later, the idea of a file format seems rather arcane or even crazy, for the first two decades of the PC era, files were everything. Files on hard drive, files on floppies, files on network drives, files on the Windows desktop and in folders, files on USB memory sticks, files in email attachments, files burned onto CD-ROM disks. Files were synonymous with work, and files required a program. Thus, file formats created a virtuous cycle for users, or network effect in modern jargon. The more people used an app and shared files, the more their coworkers benefited from using the same updated version of the product. And yes, Microsoft benefited too. To many in the regulatory world, this looked and smelled like locking in customers. To us, it seemed like a natural and beneficial feature. Over time, there would be diverging views internally at Microsoft over how critical or even appropriate leveraging this feature would be, as we shall see. 
Today, many have probably tried to explain files to a student who has only used Google applications and found doing so about as awkward as explaining linear television or fax machines. Except for the occasional PDF or those companies still operating with attachments and email, files are seemingly extinct for non-engineers. While that constraint implied to the members of the Office team was that Office 95 as it will soon be called, would not have any features significant enough to justify a file format change. People could hardly imagine what features might be dreamed up without a way to save them to a file. Every interesting feature was tied in some way to saving it to the file. Fortunately, the needs for Chicago started to echo the needs of 32-bit native applications on Windows NT. The list of work was short and easy to articulate and measure. Everything seemed doable though there were many concerns about the customer value beyond validating Chicago. I spent a lot of time shuttling across the street to the Chicago Dev hallway, sort of reverse engineering what would ultimately become the Windows logo requirements, or the minimal set of features that an application needed to implement to pass a third-party certification and receive a Design for Windows logo sticker for the box. Bill was anxious about the specifics of a list of features that apps would implement to be purpose-built for Chicago, the next chapter goes into details. The online version includes a candid email message showing some real thoughts on Office 94 in Chicago and the minimal features being built and how 32 bits was not really a big deal. Apps needed to move to 32 bits. Chicago was going to represent the transition, requiring 32 bits and a 386 processor, which could come from Intel or competitor AMD. While this sounded easy enough, there was a big problem. Requiring 32 bits and a 386 meant that Office 94 could only run on Chicago and new Windows NT PCs. While much of the market and marketing for Office was to get existing customers to upgrade, that consumed most all of our outbound marketing efforts. The cost of a new PC was significant, adding the cost of a new Office at the same time seemed exorbitant. For example, upgrading just by two, adding 2 megabytes of memory to a machine to go to 4 megabytes might cost $200 in chips, often specific to the computer, plus the time and effort and challenge to install and configure. PCs back then required screwdrivers to open, and memory was often really tricky to install. This added up to a release without many new features that also required a new computer purchase, which felt like a loser, or at least very risky. Fortunately, it was only 15% of the dev team. Office 96 continued on this commitment as well, which created a good deal of angst. So 100% of our resources were committed to 32 bits. In order to believe in this choice, one had to believe that the number of new PCs and the number of people new to computing with Chicago would be so great that the upgrade market opportunity would be much smaller. That was an enormous bet. In the world of business, this was the kind of bet known as burning the bridge. Once placed, there was no turning back. It was also the kind of bet Bill G. loved to make for apps, as he did with Excel on Windows and with the Internet. What we and everyone at Microsoft did not know at the time was that getting a first PC with Windows 95 specifically to get online would be a generational force that would make all these conversations and concerns look downright silly. This was a huge choice. Importantly, it was not the same choice our primary competitors were making. They were collectively still reluctant to go all in on 32-bit Windows the way we were in Office. From the summer of 1994 through the, the release of Office 94, the desktop leadership team 
sometimes called the Gang of Ten, wore two hats, Office 94 and Office 96. Every day, every moment, seemed to be a context switch between releases. What we did not anticipate was how that 15% would consume so much of the team. What I didn't anticipate was that somehow we ended up being so successful at convincing people not to worry about 1224 that soon people like Nathan Mirvold were suggesting a far better strategy was something like 1224-4860, that we should be building four different products in parallel, one that was five years out. It was too soon to be intoxicated with our own success, but such fantastical discussion was just getting started. Far more important was actually delivering Office 95 as one product for the very first time.